The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Good morning. Good to be here at Morgan Hill Bible Church worshiping with you. For those of you in person, here, outside, or online, we're so glad you're here today. About 20 years ago, I couldn't, it was hard to believe it was that long, but I looked up and it was 19 years ago, actually, a pop group kind of rose to fame and they were very popular. If you're a millennial, you'll know who this is in a second when I talk about them, that they were very prominent. They played at the Super Bowl, but their first song that actually brought them into stardom was very unique. Now, let's be honest. If you like pop music, that's fine. That's good. But most pop music is quite surface level in the contents that it's talking about in the lyrics. But this song was different because this song was actually written in the aftermath of the September 11th terrorist attacks. And so the song was talking about terrorism, about racism, about tensions and all of these things. Yet it rose to be one of the top songs on the charts, not just in the U.S., but around the world. And that group is called the Black Eyed Peas. And their song, the chorus of their famous song from almost 19 year, over 19 years ago says this, people are killing, people dying, children hurt, do you hear them crying? Would you practice what you preach? Would you turn the other cheek? Father, 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 help us, send some guidance from above because people have got me, got me questioning, where is the love? I apologize to you millennials who haven't heard that song in a decade and you're glad it's out of your head because now it's gonna be stuck there for the next week if you know the tune to it, it's very catchy. So, so I apologize. But that question that they asked when they looked at the world, said, where, where is the love going on in the world? That question is what we're going to ask this morning. Where is the love? But it's not as we look at the world, but it's actually a question that Jesus asks when he looks at his church. When he looks at the church, he looks at us, at the church and says, where is the love amongst you that should characterize your relationships? If you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and open them up to the book of Revelation. Revelation, if you're new to church, that's the last book actually of your Bible. It's the very last one. And we're gonna be in Revelation chapter two this morning. We are starting off a new seven part series called What Would Jesus Say? And this isn't just like hypothetical situations, but in Revelation two and three, we have what are essentially seven mini sermons that Jesus gives to seven different churches. We're gonna walk through these seven sermons that actually come from Jesus himself and we're gonna think about and reflect on them and how they deal not just with churches 2,000 years ago, but how they help and challenge us today. Before we jump into chapter two, let's set it up a little bit by going back to Revelation chapter one, just a few verses before to set up kind of this theme of of where, where this comes from. In Revelation chapter one, starting at verse nine, it says this, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, this is that same John that you're thinking of from other places. This is John the disciple who is also called John the apostle. This is the one who has the gospel written after him, the gospel of John. First, second, and third John, same guy, was a church leader. Church history says that most likely John was the only one of the apostles who actually lived a long life. Most of the other disciples who became apostles were killed for their faith, but John lived, tradition says, the longest. And so this is 
from that same John who was one of the disciples of Jesus writes this many years later. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the, sh the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his face, as at his feet, as though dead. What John is recounting here is he's led by the Spirit, and he has this vision. Who is this? This is the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, that he's seeing. Now, Revelation, and we'll see this a little bit, but especially if you've ever read the whole book of Revelation, is a book filled with imagery and word pictures. And so when John is describing in Jesus this way, he's not literally describing what Jesus' physical appearance is. He's seeing the glory and splendor of God, of Jesus risen from the dead, and he's trying to put into word pictures the majesty of the one to whom he is encountering by offering these word pictures, accentuating the greatness of Jesus. And you see this because he falls at his feet as though he were dead. He's humbled, but he laid his right hand on me. Verse 17, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so we actually, we know historically that these seven churches that we're gonna look at the next seven weeks are real churches that existed in a very real place. I have a map of here. If you're a geography person like me, you like to visualize. So this is, um, Greece is on the left. Modern day Turkey is where these seven churches are. The island of Patmos is there in the sea about 60 miles off of the coast of Turkey. And if you were to go from Patmos, the port town, the closest city would be Ephesus. And then from Ephesus, if you were to go basically clockwise around to visit these churches, that's the order in which we will go through the books, the order in which John addresses them, starting in Ephesus and going around. Now, it's interesting because Revelation, as we said, is filled with imagery and numbers as well. And here, as you read already in, these, in chapter one, the word seven, number seven comes up a lot. Well, seven is, yes, it's an accurate thing and there historically were these seven churches, but seven is also a number symbolizing perfection or completion as well. Why does Jesus give these seven? Because he's saying this is a timeless message to my entire church. These are not the only seven cities that had churches. If you look on the map, Colossae is not very far from Laodicea. We have in our New Testament, the letter to the Colossian people. We know there was a church there. But he picks these seven, Jesus says, and says by saying seven, this is my message, not just to these churches in their setting, in their place, it is that, but it is my message to the church, the church that will always be. 
And these sermons that, that will come, that we'll look at for the next seven weeks are laid out in a very similar style. I'm gonna use the, the one that one scholar pointed out in his book that I found very helpful. And so if you're like me and you like to take notes and kind of follow along, the next seven weeks you may notice are gonna be a little bit different. So the first, the first part of each of the seven will kind of walk through together how the passage is laid out because it's very similar. And as we walk through it, we'll see how some things can compare and contrast to the other churches and hopefully it will help us. The structure of these passages that are laid out is first you have the Christ title, who Jesus is. Next, you have the commendation, the good things that the churches are doing. The complaints, the, the bad things the churches are, what they need to fix. After that, you have the correction, how they are to go about doing it, followed by the consequence. What happens if you do this? What happens if you don't? It is exactly like this, the layout with three of the churches that we're going to look at, including the one today. With two of them, it's different because there's no commendation. Jesus goes full blast mode right away, right? He's looking around. He's like, I got nothing good to say. We're going in head, head first right away. With two of them, he actually has no complaints and it's just a commendation for them in their faithfulness. And so we'll walk through these the next seven weeks. Today, we are going to start off in chapter two, verse one, to Jesus's letter, his word to the church in Ephesus. So Revelation chapter two, verse one. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So in verse one, we see the title and we'll see how these titles are different through each of them. And I love these just pictures of Jesus that he portrays of himself. There's two things that really stand out about this title that Jesus gives him in, in verse one. First, with this idea that he holds the seven stars in his right hand, Jesus is conveying this idea of power, that he is, that he is Lord over his church, that he has power. We still have this expression in our world today. If someone's your right-hand man, it's like it's their go-to. It's the, the position of strength and honor. And that's what Jesus is saying, by I hold them in my right hand, that I am in control, I have power over the churches, that he is a God of power, but not just that he is the God of power, but the God of presence as well, that he walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. Jesus is not a God who is far off and removed and looks down on us from heaven, but Jesus is a God who is very much present with his church. When we gather together, God is here with us. That Jesus is not absent. He is not far off, but he is present. He was present with this church as well and encourages them. I'm the God who is in control and all power and I am here with you. That's the title that Jesus gives himself. The next thing is the commendation. What, what is this church doing well? 
What does Jesus say? Hey, good job. In essence, what he says to this church is, hey, you love good theology. You love good doctrine. You love it. You have studied the Bible. You've studied the messages of Jesus and you will not tolerate those who come in and would say something different. He's saying, you've shown this in the past. He says, there were apostles. We don't have lots of details here, but there were apostles who came to the church and proclaimed and must have said to have a message from Jesus, but they tested them. They tested their message and said, that's not true. That's not what was taught to us. That's not the God that, that is revealed in the New Testament. That is not true. And they, they didn't receive them. Remember, Jesus says this. And if you look at almost every letter in the New Testament, there's this warning that people will go out and proclaim to have a message from God. And the task of the church is to delineate, is this actually from God or not? And this church did a great job at it. They loved studying the Bible. They knew the truth and they stood for the truth. It was still a pressing issue for them in the present when this was written. In verse six, we don't know a lot about who the Nicolaitans are or exactly what they believed, but there was still clearly persecution and pressure coming from them. Verse three, this enduring patiently and bearing up. This isn't a past tense thing. They, they were still in the middle of this and they weren't growing weary. They were saying, no, no, we, we love this book. We love doctrine. We love Jesus and knowing what is right and standing on the truth of the gospel. And, and Jesus says, you have done well. You have done well to hold to the truth in the midst of a world calling you to compromise. He says, but I have a complaint. I have something that I'm holding against you, a complaint. You've lost your love. You've lost your love in the midst of your seeking after good theology and holding to the truth of what I've said. You've lost this love that you had at first. It used to characterize you. It used to be a part of your church. It was a part of your life, but it's not there right now. Now, we don't know here because he doesn't say specifically, is, is he talking about love for God? or love for people, but I don't think we really need to distinguish because if you read through the scripture, it makes clear, if you love God and you truly do love God, you will love people. If you say you love God, but you don't love people, guess what? You don't actually love God. You love your idea of God. You don't love the God of the Bible. You don't love Jesus. If you can say you love him, but you don't love others. The greatest commandments that Jesus gives Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like to it, love your neighbor as yourself. It all comes down to loving God, loving people, and they go together. We can't separate them. We love God and we love others. And he's saying, listen, you, you stand for scripture. You don't let error come into your churches, but this love that you used to have is no longer present. It's not there. So what does he call them to do? What is the correction that he calls out that they should characterize in their life? First, he says, remember. Remember where you have fallen. Look back, think back to what it used to be like, to how you used to live. Not to dwell in the past, in the good old days, but it's good to remember things as they were once before. Perhaps if, if you've ever been in a marriage setting or a marriage counseling, as I've done with some people, I've, I've just tried to remember them because we get in ruts in life sometimes. It's like, hey, think back to when you first fell in love with your spouse. What was that like? Remember, take yourself out of your current situation. Remember, maybe what, what he would say to them is, hey, remember that first time you heard the gospel. 
Remember that time when Jesus changed your life and you can think of nothing else than living for him and telling others about him. Remember that passion that was yours that now years down the road has kind of, not intentionally, but just kind of dwindled away. Think, think, think back, think back to what you once had. Remember. Secondly, repent. Remember what it was like. And then secondly, repent, change, a, a total turn in direction. You're going this way. Repent is you're now turning and going the opposite way, a total change. And then we repent by, he says, return to your works. Go back to what you once were doing. You used to love God. Your love for others used to be evident. Go back and do what you once have done. So Jesus offers this correction to them. And then lastly, we see the consequence, the consequences. And they're laid out. There's a negative consequence. If you don't, this is, this is what will happen. But if you do, this is the positive consequence as well. The negative, if you do not, second half of verse five, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. Remember that stands for the church itself. Remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now we can try and massage this and make it sound not as harsh or as big of a deal as it is, but it is as harsh as Jesus says. He's saying, listen, if, if you won't turn back to loving me and loving others, you can stand for good doctrine, but if love is not seen in your life, I will take this church away. I will remove it from you. See, if the punishment fits the crime, it shows how serious God thinks about loveless Christianity that he looks at a loveless Christianity that has the right beliefs, that knows the right things. It says, yes, Jesus died from the, for my sin. He rose again and third, that has the right theology, but isn't characterized by the heart transformation. And he's saying, no, I'm gonna remove that if you don't get back to that love that you once had. See, God will not sit idly by forever while his name is being defamed amongst the church. He will not sit by forever. And sadly, we historically know that as people went centuries later to the town in Ephesus, they write that not only could they not find a church, they could hardly even find a believer there. That we know that this church historically did not ultimately turn back for a long time to this love that God was calling them to. So the negative consequence is if you don't do this, I will remove the lampstand. You're, you're defaming my name. You're not being a witness to what I've called you to. But the positive if you do, verse seven, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That phrase, to the one who conquers, we'll see every week for the next seven weeks. To the one who conquers, this, this idea of victory, of overcoming, it's actually the same word in which the Greek word comes from the Greek God of victory from which we get a very popular company, a shoe brand nowadays, New Balance. No, I'm just kidding. It's not New Balance. It's Nike. It's the same Greek word that, that is used here in Revelation. Victory. And it, it's used both in athletic competition, even back this far, but also in a military conquest. And he's saying, if you see life, which is you'll see this, this persecution as we walk through that so many churches were having to endure, that certainly this is how they characterize life. He say, if, if you persevere, if you overcome, if you stay true to me and follow what I'm teaching you, what I'm calling you to do, 
I will grant you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, if you are familiar with much of the Bible, you'll know the rich biblical imagery in which John is writing and referring to here. The tree of life, if you go back, is there in the very beginning in Genesis chapter one and two. We see this before sin enters the world. There is the tree of life. And then you look at the very end of the book, a revelation at the very last two chapters, and we see what's there again. The tree of life is there again. The paradise of God, the word paradise literally is translated the garden the garden of God. What was life like in the beginning where the tree of life was? It was in the garden of Eden. What will we enjoy forever in the future? God's presence perfectly with us. And so it's an image rich in biblical history, but not only that, but it's very relevant to this city and this place, Ephesus, that he's writing. See, Ephesus was known as being the home of the Greek god Artemis. Their temple to this Greek God is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It dominated the scene. It was a beautiful, beautiful temple. And Jesus writes this of the tree of life and in the paradise, and he's clearly addressing his superiority over the gods that would be around and present in the city of Ephesus. See, this Artemis cult, before this temple was built, where was their religious site marked in the city of Ephesus? It was a sacred tree where they gathered to worship. Not very far from the city of Ephesus where they said the birthplace of Artemis was. Where was it? It was in a garden right outside of the city at a place that they called paradise. And what John is saying, what Jesus is saying is this religion here may offer you a tree of life in paradise, but it's truly found in me. That they will say they have it, but it's not. What it really is, is in following after me. And so this is Jesus's words to this church. So now what are three lessons, three lessons for us from the Ephesian church that we can grasp, that we can hold on to in our time today? The first is this, is we must vigilantly hold to the truth of the gospel. We must vigilantly hold to the truth of the gospel. Jesus's commendation to this church, we we shouldn't skip over it and get to his correction. He is very much so grateful and thankful and saying, this is very well done. Notice the language in verse six. You hate their works, which I also hate. They are right in line. Jesus is in line with the truth and calls on us, his church, to defend the truth of the gospel in any age in which we live. See, persecution throughout history often comes in three different forms. Um, Sometimes it can come in physical form and we'll see churches in this time that were enduring great physical torment, great physical pain for following after Jesus. My guess is though, for most of us, none of us are scared that there's someone outside gonna beat us up because we came to church today. I'm not, maybe you are, but if you will protect me, please, because I don't wanna get beat up. Right? But, but we're not in danger of physical persecution in our world. That's, not a, that's a, a blessing we have here. In some places in our worlds, that is a very real danger. That our brothers and sisters in Christ live in fear of physical harm done to them because of their beliefs. But there's also intellectual and moral persecution. The people will push back against the intellectual teachings of scripture and they will also push back against the moral teachings of scripture as well. And in our time and in our age where we live, it is especially true it's being pushed back against intellectual teaching, but especially right now, the moral teaching of scripture is hard to hold to in our worlds. It is persecution very real in our lives if we believe what the Bible says to be true and center our lives around it. It disagrees very, very sharply 
with what is popular around us. It would be much easier to say, oh, you see that verse? That's kind of offensive. I just don't, I, let's, not, let's not believe that anymore. Let's believe what everyone else believes. It would be very easy to do that in our setting, but God doesn't call us to easy. God calls us to faithfulness. And we must be vigilant and holding to the truth of God's word and standing on what he has said, what he has taught us in scripture that like this church's, we should be characterized by holding firm to the doctrine that Jesus has taught revealed in his word and not being swayed by anything else. The second lesson that this church has for us is this. If we miss love, we miss everything. If we miss love, love for God and love for others, we miss everything as a church. Now, if you are newer to our church, there are many great things, or there are many things that you're probably looking for in a great church. And some of you have been here for a long time, but especially if you're, you're newer, you're probably looking for some combination of these things. If, if you've recently made Morgan Hill Bible Church your home church, you're like, yeah, I want a place that's, that's welcoming. I want people who are nice and who smile when I, when I show up. If you have children, you're like, hey, I want something that's great for my kids, whether they're young or whether they're in youth group and teenagers, I, I want great things for them. I want music that I enjoy and that's worshipful and honoring to God. I want a church that has a high view of scripture and teaches scripture. I want one that stands on God's word and it is, will stand there. I, well, the sermon's okay, but at least he finishes on time most weeks, right? Like we can get out and get to the football game on time, right? But you know, we'll take that. Like we, we were like, oh, this, this is, we could have all of those things at this church. We could have all of that. And if we miss love, we've failed as a church. We could have the best programs, the best music, the best preaching, the biggest smiles. And if we fail to love God and love each other, we've failed as a church. If we miss this, we miss everything. 1 Corinthians 13 is a well-known passage on love. We commonly associate it with weddings, which is not a bad thing to do. This passage was read at my wedding. I'm literally doing a wedding this afternoon. The reading is this passage. But it originally was given, not in the context of marriage love, but of what the church looks like and how this functions within the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 13, starting at verse one. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have, I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Notice what he's saying there. If, if you could understand every mystery of God's word and be able to preach it, if you are the most generous person at the church, if you are so willing to sacrifice that you would die for Jesus, but you don't love others, it profits you nothing. So how do we know if like this church in Ephesus, if we are a loveless church, what, what are some signs of a church that's, that stands for good doctrine, but has lost this love? I think a few things that, that we can look to. Often in a loveless church, there's a lack of evangelism, a lack of sharing what Jesus has done with others. That we become 
insider focus. We go into a protection mentality that we need to protect the truth of God's word. And so in doing so, we need to push out everyone else. When in reality, every single one of us is called to go to the world, to go to our neighbors, to go to our coworkers, to go to our family and friends. And if we get so hung up on exactly what people believe and we don't practice love, we're not gonna be sharing the gospel. We're not gonna be telling others about what Jesus has done for them. We're gonna become so insider focused. We're not gonna be sharing the good news with others. So often there's a lack of evangelism in churches like this. Another sign that love is lacking within our midst is if there's a judgmental spirit towards those with less theological knowledge than others. If there's a judgmental spirit towards those who know less theology, who don't know the Bible quite as well as someone else. See, my hope as a pastor here is that no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, that when you're here you would know that you are loved. Some of you are here this morning and you would not call yourself a believer. You're kind of checking this stuff out and you're not really sure where you land. I hope that you feel loved here. Some of you are newer on this journey. Maybe you've placed your faith in Jesus the last year or two and you're still figuring stuff out. Some of you have been at this church and been Christians for longer than I've been alive. You've been here for decades. You've been following Jesus for decades. But no matter where we find ourselves on our journey, let's not be judgmental on the knowledge that we may have that others don't. See, the reality is, whether you're a newer believer or a longtime believer, I don't know, but I, I've been talking up front for decades now, for 16 years. I just assume that sometimes things that I'm going to say, they're not right. We should have a humility about us that there's things of our beliefs that we're really convinced of that are probably not entirely true. And so why would we judge others if they say something that we slightly disagree with or they say, and you're like, oh, that's kind of weird. Well, they just became a Christian two weeks ago. Like, why are we judging them? Let's be gracious. But where theology is so hung up that there's no love for others, there's this judgmental spirit based on, I know more about the Bible than you do. See, some of us perhaps have been part of churches like this before. We've been around Christians like describing this church in Ephesus that have this passion for God's word, which is good, have a passion for good theology, which is good, but lack the love in their hearts. See, the gospel is not a weapon to demonize and demoralize people who disagree with us. It doesn't matter what their theological position is. It doesn't matter how crazy what they say is or not. They are a person that we are called to love in the name of Jesus. I remember many years ago, I was in a conversation with a few different people who were wiser, mature, more godly than I was for sure. And they were just talking about this issue that was hard for them. They're kind of wrestling through what they should do. And it was interesting because their entire, their entire conversation reflected around, well, if I did this, people may think that I believe this. The other one was, well, if I do this, people will think that I may agree or believe this. And it was entirely about them and their perception of what people would think about their beliefs. And I simply ask them, not trying not to in an arrogant way at all, but what would it look like for you to shift your perspective and ask, what is actually the more loving thing for this person to do, regardless of what people think about me? See, the Christian ethic is not, how does my behavior influence what people think about me? The Christian ethic is, what does love ask of me in this situation? That's the ethic that drives us. Not what will people think about me, but what does love look like where God has placed me? Remember, Billy Graham had the saying, which I love, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. It's God's job to judge. It's my job to love. It's my job to love other people. Now, the solution to a loveless church 
is not to reject doctrine that people don't like. It's not to water down the Bible. It's not to make it easier or throw away things that go against what culture or other people would like. We'll see this in a few weeks, a church that had the temptation to do this. That's certainly not what, what God is calling this church or us to as well. What is he calling us to? Doctrinal purity and love for others must go together. They're rightly understanding, rightly believing God's word and rightly loving God and loving the people around us go together. A loveless church is a lifeless church. The gospel must lead to love in our lives. Many years ago, Francis Schaeffer wrote this. He said, biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. Biblical orthodoxy, what that means is the proper beliefs. So you know the right thing. You have the right knowledge in your head, but without compassion, without love, without it actually lived out through your life, when it stays in your head and doesn't get to your heart and actually change you, it's such an ugly thing because it, it corrupts us and it's not the kind of life that God has called us to. Christianity is far more than just intellectual assent to a series of beliefs, but it's a transformation of our very core and our hearts of how we live our lives. So how do we spot if this is true for us, if this is true in your life, if you've started to lose this love? wonder if we are more concerned and think more and dwell more on a church down the road or that our friends go to or someone else that has maybe a slightly different view on baptism or spiritual gifts or eschatology, if we're more concerned about that church and their theology than the tens of thousands of people who live in Morgan Hill and Gilroy who are separated from Jesus, we've lost sight of what it looks like to love others. If we care more about people's minuscule theology than about the fact that they're struggling and hurting and need to be loved, we've lost sight of it. If we would rather attend another Bible study or listen to another podcast or watch another sermon rather than go outside and talk to our neighbor and try and build a relationship with them to love them towards Jesus, we've lost sight of it. It's not an either or, it's a both ands. And some of us have leaned too far away from this love that God has called us to, which is good news for the third part. The third lesson that this church has that we see week after week through these churches is God is a God of second chances. God is a God of second chances. He calls this church to Ephesus to radical change, but he really does offer them the opportunity. Don't you love that God's not up there and he looks looking down? He's like, hey, you messed up, you're done, you're out. No, he points out our failures, he points out our mistakes and then gives us the grace we need to change. That is who our God is, that he is gracious and slow to anger, abounding in love. And if this has been true of you, it's not too late to change. It's not too late to change. And so I would just ask for us this morning, just to search your own heart. Because if we miss love, if love is lacking in our church, if love is lacking in our lives, we've missed what God has called us to. So think back was there a time before where that love for Jesus was more fervent in your life? Was there a time, perhaps it was years ago, where you were passionate, when you loved sharing, when you loved talking, when that love was alive? And if you felt yourself perhaps drifting from that love in your life today, just call out, call out say, God, I, I wanna return. 
I want that kind of love in my life again. And if you've been a part of exposed to Christianity, but it's been apart from this kind of love, I just wanna tell you that this kind of Christianity is what Jesus talks about in the Bible. Yes, he died for your sin. He rose from dead. And the relationship he wants is one of love with you. Not rules to follow, not morals to live your life, but he wants this loving relationship with you. And he calls you into that today if you would simply come and answer to him. God, we thank you that your word says that we can love others because you have first loved us. God, we have each been loved far more than we deserve and far more than we will ever comprehend. God, may out of a realization of what you've done for us, may our lives be built on this radical love of Jesus Christ. God, may our church, may each of us in our lives, may we be known not just for holding firm to the truth of the gospel, but may we also be known for lives of love living out the gospel, living out that love that has so changed our hearts and our lives, that love that can change the world as well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.